This podcast, number 88, is entitled Tana and Tahrir, and it makes or attempts to make the connection between the wartime era Universal Mummy films, three of them starring Lon Chaney Jr., with the so-called Arab Spring, with a slight meditation on the nature of reality. The cast is intended to be as funny as I find this material, as affectionate and passionately interested as I am disposed towards this material, and hopefully actually with a germ of something that might carry you to a whole, what do we say, a whole new level. Tana and Tahrir. And remember, my address for response, questions, and your thoughts is podcast at gmail.com. PZS without an apostrophe, podcast, one word, at gmail.com. And I begin by reading a sentence from a movie entitled, a book entitled, The Mummy Unwrapped by Thomas Faramisco. I think this came out in the year 2004, and to my knowledge, it's the only, shall we say, thoroughly vested book on the universal 1940s horror films, which starred first Tom Tyler in The Mummy's Hand and then Lon Chaney Jr. in The Mummy's Tomb, The Mummy's Ghost, and The Mummy's Curse in that order. And here is uh, Mr. Faramisco's paragraph on page 56. Of the four mummy films produced by Universal during the wartime era, The Mummy's Hand clearly stands out as the best of the bunch. But among fans of the genre, The Mummy's Ghost gives hand a good run for its money. Well, never truer words were writ, to quote Jack Kerouac. And I'm going to be talking about the nature of reality as it relates to The Mummy's Ghost, which was, uh, I believe, uh, released in the year 1944, and then uh, pass along to talk a little bit about the Arab Spring, and also the nature of reality, because this is a theme of great... uh, uh, of, of, of great connection. And you too, the living, can make these kinds of connections with all sorts of material. But the mummy's ghost, not to mention the other Lon Chaney Jr. mummies, the two, actually has something important to, to say to us about the nature of ultimate reality. Can you stand it? I mean, can you absolutely stand it? So take it with a grain of salt or take it for all it's worth. Tana and Tahrir. Now, the quote that actually begins this podcast, that was a warm-up from Herr Faramisco. The quote that actually begins it is from one of Aldous Huxley's later novels, one of his four mystical novels, if you exempt Eilis in Gaza as sort of the breakthrough, but these are all critics' uh, ways of thinking of it. But I'm a tremendous uh, protagonist and, and fan of his middle period um, so-called metaphysical or mystical novels, uh, one being... Uh, after many a summer dies the swan, the second being time must have a stop. Um, help I have that in order. I may have, no, that's in order. And the third being ape and essence, a kind of um, dystopian um, thought about Hollywood, but it, it's a screenplay. And finally, the genius and the goddess, which in a way is, is a perfect distillation of ideas in these novels and only has 168 pages. Now, he says this at page the beginning, first page of The Genius and the Goddess. Huxley writes, oddly enough, the closest to reality 
are always the fictions that are supposed to be the least true. Well, this is a a something, isn't it? Oddly enough, the closest to reality are always the fictions that are supposed to be the least true. Well, let me talk about that view of reality, and then I'll apply it to the Arab Spring, but in a I hope you'll regard this as an ironic and funny way. Um, to me, it's funny because it lends perspective to something that is absolutely playing out in front of us. And then a little bit to sort of uh, the nature of, uh, of reality as a whole and what the real questions are to ask of your life. Because there are really two as I see it. Now, in The Mummy's Ghost... You have this absolutely, by the way, The Mummy's Ghost is one hour and one minute long and is very well edited and very well made. And I won't go into all the blah, blah, blah about The Mummy's Ghost, which I'm fully prepared to do and would love to do. But I want to move a little more quickly into the actual events at the beginning. There is something here about the nature of reality. I've seen this movie innumerable times. And there's something about um, the nature of reality, which the child in me and the child who saw it so many years ago, and, however, the person who now lives in the hills of Arkham, um, the, uh, the hills of the Seven Jackals, you are going to see something that is um, beyond doubt. Because at the beginning of this movie, George Zucco, playing the high priest of Arkham in Egypt, is entertaining an audience with a young recruit neophyte priest, played by John Carradine, who played these roles with tremendous sincerity. And uh, just, I mean, it's they're unbelievable, but there we are. And he plays the sort of assistant neophyte priest who uh, pays a pilgrimage to receive his orders. And here, uh, his commission, George Zucco as the high priest, invests him with the order of the high priest of Arkham and tells him to go to Massachusetts. Now, remember, we're currently uh, somewhere near the Sphinx, according to the editing of the sequence, uh, in the near the Sphinx and the great pyramids of, uh, you know who, what we're talking about. And um, we're in Egypt, <coughs> clearly. And uh, we are told that the unbelievers had removed uh, the faithful mummy of Karis, who had fallen in love with... Uh, the Princess Amina, uh, in centuries and centuries ago in ancient Egypt. And uh, they'd both been buried and paid the terrible penalty for their um, blasphemous love. And the unbelievers, the Scripps Museum, in short, had removed the uh, body of uh, uh, the beautiful princess to uh, the museum, which apparently is near Mapleton, Massachusetts. And at Mapleton, Massachusetts... She is now there, but the mummy of Karis, uh, which died uh, at the end of the mummy's tomb, who had also died at the end of the mummy's hand in Egypt, but then had made it to Mapleton and died a year earlier at the end of the mummy's tomb. This mummy was somehow in the woods, in uh, still alive to be resurrected in the mummy's ghost. Now, this is the reality issue. <laughs> You immediately switch over to a professor at the University of Mapleton who's talking with a very uh, UC kind of what Hollywood used to think was the UC Catherine Hepburn type accent, but with a male version. And his wife has the same painful Park Avenue accent, sort of. And you could go on and on about that. But he is uh, experimenting with some tana leaves that he has found. And he's discovered that nine tana leaves.
leaves when properly burned with a pipkin and a crucible can therefore um, create uh, the uh, attraction to summon a mummy if uh, an Egyptian mummy is within sort of odor um, range and lo and behold but what's happening in the scene uh, unconsciously is that you watch it and it makes all the sense in the world that the Egyptian priests should somehow be presiding over the event happening thousands of miles across the ocean in Mapleton, Massachusetts, as Professor whatever his name is summons the mummy unknowingly. And yet something else is happening, which we have only had a slight insight into, but anyone who knows the genre instinctively, actually any person instinctively knows this. You don't have to know the genre at all. That's my point. The reality of the mummy's ghost is so true to life that Anyone can understand it. It's like the King James Bible or the original Book of Common Prayer. The mummy's ghost is written in a universal language understanding of the people because we see, as the professor uh, burns in his study, these tana leaves back in Mapleton, and there's all these voiceovers and switching back and forth to Egypt. It is absolutely... it. Follows as the night, the day that the mummy should be approaching the uh, scent of the of the ham and eggs of the breakfast of the of the tana leaves in the professor's house, and yet um, the Egyptian girl played by Ramsey Ames, the they were always had sort of budding starlets in these roles as the uh, victim who was in some uh, transferential body transference way connected to the ancient Egyptian princess, and she's a young Egyptian girl who is the secretary to the professor, I believe. And uh, she, uh, her, she has two names. One is, uh, is Amina Mansouri, and the other is Amina El-Harun. Now, let me uh, take a slight thing. Mansouri and Amina, you may not know this, but most of the descendants of the ancient Egypt or many uh, descendants of ancient Egyptians in current uh, Egypt are Christians. Uh, whenever the Christians have a procession, and they're roughly 10% of the population, are the Coptic Christians. This is an, We're going to get to this a little bit. This is actually a very difficult time for them. But whenever there's a religious procession uh, by the Coptic Christians, and I've actually seen the Pope because he visited Ambridge, Pennsylvania once when I was at Trinity Episcopal School for Ministry, but that's a whole other story. But this is true. The Coptic Pope, who is actually most of the time near Cairo. And uh, when there are religious processions, which happen a couple times during the year, at least in Cairo, there's always a group of uh, people dressed up as ancient Egyptian maidens and ancient Egyptian guards, because the Coptic Christians, in fact, are the descendants of the most ancient Egyptians, because the Arab migration and the Arab conquest of Egypt, which occurred in the 7th century AD, brought a, a whole strain of different blood uh, into the into Egypt, and it was no longer the original Egyptians, but a tremendous people from the Arab peninsula. And so Egypt changed very radically in the 7th and 8th century when it was Islamized. Islamized. Well, so the uh, 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 Amina uh, Mansouri, played by Ramsey Ames, who will later look a little bit like the Bride of Frankenstein because as she increasingly gets in touch with her inner princess loved by the um, mummy uh, Karis, she gets older and older and of course we know in all these movies that oldness in the, um, uh, in the um, or horror for a, a, a woman as she gets closer in touch with the monstrous always means a white shivering streak in your hair which is to indicate death or electricity or Elsa Lancaster in the Bride of Frankenstein. 
But her name is also Amina El Harun, but we know her as Amina, Miss Mansouri. And Ramsey Ames sits up in bed as Lon Chaney Jr., as Kara sort of walks by her house and her, his shadow passes across her sleeping face. She immediately, you understand, here's reality. Reality knows that she, being an Egyptian, is going to be immediately sensate to the passage of the 5,000 or 4,000-year-old mummy, 3,000-plus-year-old mummy. That is, duh, that is obvious. Well, so so what do you have here? You have people in ancient Egypt, uh, in terms of the way that movie is edited, the, way, the, the, the feel of the narrative, summoning up by means of a hapless uh, idiot but smart professor who's sort of onto the thing unknowingly, a mummy rising from the woods outside of Mapleton, Massachusetts, which is actually somewhere in Hollywood. And uh, then uh, Amina Mansouri, played by Ramsey Ames, immediately jumping up and getting on her nightgown, which is beautiful, uh, gorgeous uh, satin white nightgown, and walking uh, uh, distractedly in her sleep uh, to find her true love. Now, isn't that classic? The, the woman immediately understands the nature of the true love, who also will understand this, because that's all clear. That's really what Karas is looking for. He's looking for uh, his uh, beloved and uh, uh, his ancient beloved. Who isn't looking for his ancient beloved? I mean, who here? What is love all about? Love is all about finding your ancient beloved. That that that, that energy of love in you, which is responding, boom! It's like uh, um, Gene Kelly and uh, Francoise Dorliac in Les Demoiselles de Rochefort, the young girls of Rochefort, who, who immediately have an age-old love in simply the communication of their eyes. There it is. And it's played with this wonderful Michel Legrand um, piano arpeggio is just cascading over the land of eternity and ultimately Egypt. Now, uh, isn't it absolutely true that your true love, you'd immediately rise to meet your true love and your true love would know it, but your true love is also a 3,000-year-old mummy? I mean, which which man among you doesn't identify with being a 3,000-year-old mummy who's very eager to have a beautiful young woman fall in love with him? It's a great line later on when the sheriff, played by Barton McLean, says, Miss Mansouri, are you really accustomed to walking around the campus in your nightgown? Uh, and there's another line right before that. He says, uh, they've just discovered the body, the professor, who needless to say has been killed by Karis uh, the mummy. And he says, what's the verdict, coroner? Strangulation. Great line. What's the verdict, coroner? Strangulation. Now, um... What we're saying here, I'm trying to argue in favor. I love this movie so much that I have to avoid getting co-opted by a desire to tell you how great it is. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying that there is a deep truth in the response of the viewer. And I I believe I can assure you that were you to... Uh, see this movie with me, and you can it's you can get find it on YouTube, The Mummy's Ghost, or you can buy it. It's on the recent Stephen Summers, uh, uh, rather overpriced, but I think you can get it for less now. Uh, Universal Monster Legacy on the Mummies. I was given to me for Christmas, but I've, I already had it, thank God, in VHS form. But it's a wonderful movie on DVD. And uh, it's recently been released. It's very easy to get. Any Barnes & Noble will have it. The Mummy's Ghost. <clears throat> but inside you... The person who lives inside your body is a realist. And you understand, as Aldous Huxley understood so uh, brilliantly, that the closest to reality 
are always the fictions that are supposed to be the least true. So not only is it absolutely abundantly obvious to us, the viewer of The Mummy's Ghost, that somehow the Egyptian priests have this connection that is wordless and only has to do with the editing of the tale with events that are going on in Mapleton, Massachusetts, from the pyramid of Cheops to the town of Mapleton, Massachusetts, there is no question that it's the same thing. I mean, that's what reality really tells you. Um, All the words in the world about the fact that they're geographically not connected means nothing. Clearly, it is ultimately an Egyptian, uh, ancient, occult, brilliantly uh, sinister and extremely fascinating and cool plot to get this mummy uh, to come back to the University of Mapleton for the it just makes all the sense in the world. And when the mummy naturally gravitates towards the professor's house with his sort of pseudo Park Avenue lisp, and you have um, you have uh, this uh, uh, what is it uh, Amina Mansouri played by Ramsey Ames, and she just sits up in bed vividly, puts on her beautiful robe, and begins to quote wander around the campus. Such that later she is lectured by her very protective um, um, landlady. She's renting a room, a very beautiful room, uh, in a house near the campus, and the landlady is Mrs. Blake. Don't you love it? Well, you see, this is what reality is. Now, this is what I want to talk about. Reality is actually far closer to the mummy's ghost than it is to any number of realities that you may happen to think. Now, let's think, um, this is my point, that reality as you see it, all the various uh, preconceptions that you have about reality, that so-called reality is rendered null and void in light of the immediate electric response that almost any viewer of any age, of every type, of any ethnicity, and of any background, uh, of any hyphen American, uh, any of us, age, background, life, history, weight, uh, perspective, uh, upbringing, parents, lineage, all of that goes into a cocked hat when you watch The Mummy's Ghost because it's just so evident that the mummy and Amina Mansouri are meant to be together and that the white streak in her hair in just without any question is obvious. You look at the, 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 the her lover, her boyfriend, uh, played by some uh, actor named Robert Lowry, as I recall, when he sees the, the streak in her head, uh, he makes no comment, but the camera dwells on the streak and his eyes gravitate towards the streak. And you notice it because the streak is there when the... Um, when the sheriff is, quote, interviewing her, the streak is there. We all see the streak, and we all, without having to be coached, know that the streak has something to do with her connection to a 3,000-year-old mummy. And so obvious is that, that the scriptwriters, who were three, uh, th- two men and a woman wrote this script in 1943 or something like that, and, and you know that they knew instinctively they didn't have to coach the audience. You see, reality knows that the streak has to do with her connection to eternal love. And uh, reality knows that it's an ineluctable draw that cannot be resisted and an irresistible attraction, the one to the other. That is what reality understands. And reality knows that people, um, uh, the high priests of Arkham, have an irresistible connection to Mapleton, Massachusetts. Now, this is carried on through the thing, and there's a lot more to be said, but I want to talk about Tariq Square for a second, and then I want to finish with a word on reality, and something that Aldous Huxley actually said that relates to Christianity and is actually very interesting as you look at your own sense of what religion may or may not be and in, in its value to the human predicament, because I do believe that human life 
uh, hides and not very successfully an enormous predicament, the predicament of suffering, the predicament of the ego, the predicament of death, and the predicament of dissolution in light of dissolution, dissolution in light of the life of love which we all uh, towards which we all aspire. Now, what happened in Tariq Square has a lot to rear square in Cairo has a lot to do with this because the only thing that concerned me when I heard about the so-called Arab Spring, which I do not actually believe, by the way, that neither here nor there, I do not believe there has been an Arab Spring. Um, only in a purely um, formal sense, to use philosophical categories, but not in a material sense, and I'll say why in just a second. The only thing that concerned me at Tahrir Square was the Cairo Museum and the fact that uh, some thieves broke through uh, the second floor uh, during the tremendous uprising and all the massive hundreds of thousands of people there against the government of Hosni Mubarak and broke in and stole a couple mummies. Now, the only thing that struck me, I immediately thought when I read about that, that there had been a, a theft at the Cairo Museum, which was now being well protected, finally, by groups of young people who, uh, in the demise of the regime, were protecting the museum against further um, vandals. But these were not vandals. They stole two bodies. And what went through your mind? And what went through your mind when you heard that? It, the only really interesting thing to me was that of the whole thing. I oh my gosh, somebody they're going to end up in Mapleton, Massachusetts. All that I was concerned about, and it was actually I was hopeful, was that somebody has had the right idea and has stolen these mummies for purposes of being reincarnated or reanimated is really the proper word in Mapleton, Massachusetts. Or as it turns out, in the Mummy's Curse, which was released in 1945 in the bios of Louisiana, although it's never explained by Hollywood, they had an extremely cool idea that the mummy and his um, eternal love who die at the end of the mummy's ghost would be resurrected uh, uh, in swamp material at the beginning of the last of these mummy movies of Lon Chaney Jr. called The Mummy's Curse. But somehow, boop, we're in Louisiana. Boop! And we're with French people who are sort of representing the free French who all, it's sort of like a scene in Casablanca all of a sudden in Louisiana where all these people are singing about French things down in bio country, but they really make you feel, it's wonderful Louisiana material, but it's all tied into sort of, you expect Maquis and members of the French resistance and Nazis to suddenly walk into the cafe where the ill-fated uh, mama, whatever her name is, is singing her song soon to meet the resurrected um, body played now by Virginia Christine, who I think was a, a, a poster girl for Folger's Coffee or something like that, some coffee uh, later on. Uh, but now she is the resurrected version of Ramsey Ames, but is now in Louisiana. Now, that's reality, by the way. Reality is that a true love uh, buried in the swamp with Caris at the monstrous and really wonderful conclusion of The Mummy's Ghost should awaken in Louisiana, being sung over and for by a wonderful um, Mama Geneviève, or whatever it is, uh, singing in her French tavern, singing to the French resistance. Now, that is reality. That is my contention, ladies and gentlemen. That's reality. Now, what was so important about Tahrir Square is I was afraid that reality might actually come to be true again in the uh, of these bodies. Now, what what is parenthetically, what one knows, what one I believe sees is this. In fact, was probably not an Arab Spring. As I said, on the formal level, it was a democratic movement, but on the material level, it was actually the the uh, the the, the uh, catharsis by which the rise to power of the strong is. Islamists in Egypt was uh, guaranteed. Now, you know, we can talk forever and ever and ever, amen, but the recent votes, 
the elections, the fact that the Muslim Brotherhood was so involved, uh, and they are extremely involved and will continue to be, the fact that all my friends who are Christians, and I, I have very close friends who are on the ground in Cairo and Alexandria, I was once invited to give a series of lectures on theology in Alexandria, and I told the Bishop of Egypt, wonderful man, he's the Archbishop now, and he's one of the primates of the... Anglican Communion now, and I, I, he said, uh, will you come? And I said, well, I'll come and I'll speak in Alexandria and Cairo, but under one condition. And he said, what is the condition? And I said, well, that you'll make, give me a day in the Cairo Museum on either end of the lectures. And he said, oh, well, that's easy. And I said, wait, you haven't heard everything. It has to be, I have to get it to be in the Cairo Museum at night. And he said, at night? Why at night? Well, I told him, and he said, oh, well, I would have thought you, oh, wouldn't you have said something? Oh, I should have thought. I was leading him on uh, because I was so eager to be in the Cairo Museum at night. Well, uh, he didn't have, uh, he has a sense of humor, as it turns out, and he thought that was funny. I didn't go for a variety of historical intervening circumstances. I wish I had. I don't think I ever will now. But to rear square, reality is that you can talk all you want about email revolutions or text revolutions or internet revolutions and young people rising up over the web and the, over the internet, and you may have a very good point. Um, as I say, materially, uh, formally or, or on the surface, but the material or substantial nature of the revolution was never in doubt. I, I mean, I talked to these people. They're, quote, shaking in their boots, just like the junior class at Brearley School, according to the New York Times recently, is shaking in their boots. That's so funny because Yale did not accept any early admissions um, students in the senior class at Brearley School in New York City this year. And so the junior class is shaking in their boots. Well, uh, actually, the Christians were shaking in their boots. And all the journalistic views, all the preconceptions, all the sort of Americanized ideas that we may have projected onto that great event. And some participants actually did see it that way. The presence of the Muslim Brotherhood gave quite a different odor, ton of leaves. And we knew what was actually going to happen and what will happen there, in my humble opinion. So reality, you see, what we think. So, so that's why I'm really not concerned about it because the reality was not as, as – the, the world thought reality was one thing, the world of the, of the coverage. But the reality has much more to do with the a, a turning rightward religiously of Egypt. I mean rather than a great democratic view of the Department of State in uh, Washington. And so therefore the really interesting fact was the robbing of the, a couple of uh, pharaonic um, um, mummies by the high priests of Archon, which occurred on Tahrir Square. And I'm – any moment in Winter Garden, Florida, I'm thoroughly expecting what few orange groves are left here, and there are almost none, but uh, from one of the groves, maybe on beyond Route 50, in some far away world in Claremont, Florida, I'm fully expecting John Carradine to uh, wake me up at night with an eternal love song directed to my beautiful and rather Egyptian-looking wife, who many people uh, compared to Nefertiti uh, along our ministry. Um, I'm not the only one there. I can name all sorts of attracted men to my beautiful wife, Mary, who hasn't changed an iota in the way she looks over 40 years. She um, was often compared to an Egyptian princess. I am looking for that that touch of white in the electrical formation of the bride, but haven't seen it yet. Well, now you see what I'm saying? Reality, if you want to know about reality, see the mummy's ghost. 
If you want to know reality, think about the mummies on Tahrir Square and don't believe a word you read. I mean, if you do, you'll just be confounded and disillusioned later. And finally, I want to conclude with something that Aldous Huxley said that I think is very interesting. He was interviewed years ago. You can see a lot of interviews with him, and they vary. He has this incredible Victorian Etonian accent, which he came by honestly, and all that stuff about Aldous Huxley. I'm just interested not in the man. I'm interested in what he said. And he did have some very interesting things to say because he was, in fact, in a very interesting dialogue with uh, a certain strain of Christianity that is orthodox and uh, mystical. And he said at one point something quite interesting. He said, well, you know, the cross, he was being interviewed, you can see it on YouTube, he was being interviewed about various um, religions, and he, they said, well, you're a Christian. He said, well, I'm, 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 I'm really not a practicing Christian because I find the symbol of the cross uh, inadequate to explain everything. And then what do you mean? He said, well, the Christ, symbol of the cross is wonderful, he said, insofar as it refers to redemption, forgiveness, and uh, moral salvation, and, and r- remorse, and honesty. Uh, he used the word repentance and forgiveness. And these are, this is a great, great value in Christianity, but it doesn't talk about the space-time continuum. Now, I thought to myself, now, wait a second. This is what he said. He said, the cross has value because it represents forgiveness and, uh, and the moral aspect of human affairs. But it doesn't talk enough, the cross, as purely as a symbol, it doesn't talk enough about the space-time continuum. And I thought to myself, you know, there's, he has a point. The, 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 the symbol of the cross, and I'm looking at my grandfather's uh, cross, which is right in front of me, a beautiful old cross that he made in his old age out of wood somewhere, and I'm looking at the cross. It's right here with my statue of Dumbo and my birth certificate that says Roswell, 1947, and uh, a picture of Mary and our three sons and their wives and grandchildren, but uh, there's his cross, and I'm thinking, well, you know, it does speak of the man, the... the uh, Quis tolis peccata mundi, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But it doesn't really actually speak of the space-time continuum. And the reality of our lives consists of two things. One is the tremendous need for a new start and forgiveness, and you must be born again. You don't have to fill that in doctrinally. Everybody knows deep down, simply in the hospital room when you're dying, that every one of us wants to be born again and start over. There's not a single person who's listening to this podcast who doesn't want to start over. There's not a single one of us who doesn't wish to start over. And that's where the cross has this uh, kind of virtue and fortitudo that will never, ever be mulcted of its significance to human struggling beings. And yet it doesn't necessarily respond to the question of of reality. Is what I see true? What is the reality behind the reality? What is the nature of of uh, of E equals MC squared and the, the nature of all the quantitative physics and astrophysics and uh, 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 quantum physics that surround uh, reality in which we are formed? What is all that about? And that is something where uh, the message of the mummy's ghost has something to con- tell us. Uh, I would say that the great insight of Christianity has to do with the cross and the forgiveness, which, by the way, has to do with Christians, which most Christians don't understand that. They think it just has to do with non-Christians. The, the, the message of grace is a message for Christians, i.e. a message for everybody, because everybody, whatever religion or doctrine or beliefs you may hold, everybody from Count Dracula to Ramsey Ames, may she rest in peace, to me, to you, to Karnak, to the high priests of Arkham, need a new start. That is very clear, even from John Carradine's own words in The Mummy's Ghost. But in addition to that, we need to understand what is around us. 
And when we see the reality of what was understood to be happening in Tahrir Square and what actually happened as the result of the uprisings on Tahrir Square, we see immediately that, uh, and the fact that the Christians are all running, that the Christians are all running to Detroit, they all want to get out. All That's, an, that's like the stock market. It, it never lies. The market never lies. Well, the fact that all the Christians are getting exit visas and uh, getting uh, trying to get uh, all sorts of uh, asylum in the United States and Europe, France, Lebanon, remember, that's what the market never lies. And the truth of the matter has very little to do what... Um, journalists projected on it. It has something to do with something much different. And uh, um, I would say with a slight tongue-in-cheek that if you understand why you immediately can empirically grasp the connection between John Carradine and George Zucco in uh, the pyramids of Cheops and underneath the Sphinx, communicating with a, a mummified body in Mapleton, Massachusetts, who will soon be in Louisiana... Uh, communicating with a young Egyptian girl on the campus of Mapleton University and a, a professor who's stumbling onto the power of Tana leaves miles away. If you understand the obvious space-time connections between those facts, which all you need to do is see the montage of the mummy's ghost and all is clear, then you will see that the nature of reality is to read once again and you apply this to your own sense of what you think is true and what actually has turned out to be true, what Herr Huxley said at the beginning of the first page of The Genius and the Goddess. Oddly enough, the closest to reality are always the fictions that are supposed to be the least true. May God bless you, hugs, and I'll talk to you soon.